and welcome to the latest episode of Chillin' in the Statehouse, everyone's favorite, most chill Statehouse podcast. I'm Andrew Ball, one half of the state government team, or I guess today one third of the state government reporting team. I'm joined by my colleague Jason Tidd. Jason, how are you, sir? Doing well. It's a holiday weekend. We get a day off. Hopefully, new cycle will co- cooperate, and we not, no, nothing big will break over the weekend. Uh, and as I alluded to, we are joined by our sometimes state house friend and colleague, and sometimes he's off at recess. Rafael Garcia, the K-12 uh, and higher ed uh, education reporter at the Topeka Capital Journal. Rafael, welcome. I'm glad to be here. It took you long enough to have me. <laughs> well, back in the day, you had your own podcast, and we never got an invite. So We'll start it back up, and we can have a special episode, and probably just that episode only. But you'll be <laughs> on there. We'll have you. Well, we decided to do this uh, momentous occasion because there was a lot. There's a lot to talk about with education and uh, state politics and uh, the legislature this session. And uh, we we had a story kind of breaking some of that down. If you all prefer the written form of our work at cjonline.com, but. Raphael, why don't we just start with what do you think have been the the biggest developments uh, at a at an education policy level uh, so far in 2022, and and how has the legislature kind of factored into that? That's a good question. I'm trying to rack my brain. Is there anything that really changed for schools? Well, there was a lot of talk about changing. A lot things. of talk about, but did anything actually change? I don't think very many things did in the passing that monumentally change anything except for open enrollment but again we're not seeing that for another year um heading into this next school year there was a um transgender students or athletes bill didn't pass um funding that did pass at the higher levels but um yeah it's mostly just status quo for school districts and and the the parents bill of rights yeah parents bill of rights it's it i i can't see how the life of the average Kansas K-12 student or family is going to be that much radically different for all the talk that of some of these bills that caused a lot of discussion and debate, but they didn't end up going through. So we can just call it a day, right? That's really quick podcast. I or... mean, that's what the schools are doing. We're out for the summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, why don't we start with open enrollment, though? Because I think it's kind of an interesting case study and gets at some of the kind of bigger issues that have been debated. Jason, because you're working on an open enrollment story right now, you want to talk us through what the policy is? Kind yeah, of, so you know, we can we can tag team this. So, uh, open enrollment is a school choice policy. Uh, generally, conservatives and more libertarian groups push these kinds of school choice policies as a way to increase educational opportunity for students. Uh, Education groups generally oppose it. Uh, they don't see this as solving the root cause of problems for all students. It is instead a way to help individual students uh, that doesn't come with a broader benefit to the community. I, I, I That would be a fair way of putting it, Raphael? Oh, exactly. Uh, so this open enrollment policy... In Kansas, schools can already let 
students from out of district attend students I attend schools in that district but it is not required this bill requires districts to determine what their capacity is for adding more students or admitting more students from outside their district if they have capacity they have to accept students who apply from outside their district if there's more students that apply than the number of openings, then it goes to a lottery. We won't, though, be seeing the impacts on this for a couple of years, though, right? Right. Not this next school year, not the school year after that. It will we'll go into effect the 24-25 school year. Yeah, there's still a lot of logistics to figure out on that. And funny enough, I think this is just me guessing. I haven't seen any actual talk on this, but my guess is this bill will ultimately actually tamp down on um, some of that cross-district movement. Like you said, a lot of school districts already have policies in place for um, students who maybe they've grown up through the district most of their life, but their parents moved to a nearby but um, different district they can finish out their school careers there, or maybe there's a case of divorce. There's been policies in place to help out students in situations like that, but with some of this um, new policy that would require school districts to calculate that capacity, I I would guess that that might cause districts to just get rid of any of those policies that they had previously and um, just tamp down completely on some of that district to district movement and there's a lot of unanswered questions at this point on how it will work and that's part of the reason for giving it time to go into effect Uh, and for a lot of places you might not really notice much of a difference Uh, it will the primary areas that would see it are certain urban areas so you know here in Topeka it might be Auburn Washburn that would see the biggest effect but they also are struggling with capacity issues. That's why they just had a bond election to build a new middle school. Well, similarly, like Andover outside Wichita is one that I think is expecting to be implicated. Some of the KC Metro, uh, Johnson County. And I mean, I I don't know, Raphael. Would you say that more than 10 or 12 districts across the state really are are the ones that ultimately will feel a, a big impact on this? The more desirable suburban districts? I from from much of the state i like you said you know status quo kind of yeah i i remember from doing a story on washburn rural i think a th- more than two-thirds of the state's 286 school districts are fewer than a thousand students they cover multiple counties sometimes hundreds of square miles of um area for them it's not going to be feasible to have students drive hours away to a different school district now if you are here it's somewhere like for example, Topeka 501, and you are trying to get into Auburn and Washburn, that will be a different story. But again, it's just going to be a question of logistics over these next few years on um, if districts do decide that they're going to pretty strictly set their capacity limits and they won't take any um, out-of-district students. A lot of questions to still be answered. Well, dis- despite the unanswered questions, this drew a lot of pushback specifically from Democrats and even some Republicans who, who primarily come from, they might be more moderate and come from more rural areas where this just isn't really an issue. Uh, and, and some folks were, were kind of disappointed that this wound up becoming law. 
it wound up in the in the K twelve education budget, which for those of you who, who haven't been tracking that, it got spun off from the the big budget, the, the big budget bill, uh, kind of became its own thing and was loaded up with education policies, some of which had broad agreement and others of which did not. Uh, and w- with open enrollment, part of the reason people weren't entirely excited about this is it, it was viewed as taking away local control. School boards previously could allow uh, people from out of district. I mean, growing up in Iola, there were, I had classmates who lived in Humboldt. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of the cross-district uh, enrollment going on, but it was something that could happen, and those local school boards were allowed to make those decisions. Now, if they have capacity, they're going to have to accept those students. Yeah, another bit of opposition to this idea is the fact that it's not helping students broadly per se. It's helping individual students, but it's going to be those individual students with means to be able to um, transport themselves or have family members transport them to a different school district that's going to be maybe miles or up to an hour away. And it might cause more administrative work for districts. And when it comes to special education students, it might mean that you now have to find more resources to help with those students that just makes it more difficult for planning for the next school year well and in to Raphael's point and I think Jason you, you said a similar thing earlier um, that has been the criticism leveled at, at a lot of the school choice proposals we've seen in the state house the last couple of years in the 2021 session there was a proposal to create what called education savings accounts Colloquially, people kind of tag these as school vouchers, not quite school vouchers, but they're basically, it's the same concept. You get public money to go use at a private school. It's the same kind of thing. You know, the argument boils down to, is it worthwhile to divert um, public funds or in this case, kind of public energy (laughs) to, to, you know, leveling the playing field, but not for everyone? And are there ways to level the playing field for everyone? Now, proponents of school choice would say that, you know, the micro level really does have an impact and and that the only way to prompt districts to do better is to, you know, create basically a free market of, of, uh, you know, if you don't feel that uh, 501, USD 501 in Topeka is getting the job done, you can go to Auburn Washburn and, 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 and maybe enroll there. Um, no, the budget did have some other policies directed more at increasing uh, academic performance. There was the math uh, nation originally uh, for math nation exclusively piece of the budget. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, there's so much in that bill that I, I kind of almost forget little bitty pieces. Although that that wound up, it kind of got um, progressively. Uh, changed, but the idea being that that legislators are not happy with they're not happy in general with state uh, assessments, right, Raphael? Mm-hmm. Raphael's no, shaking his head. That, that that doesn't play well on the on the audio format. It's okay, folks. We'll we'll get them up to speed. Um, but it they decided that you know what what we're going to do is we're going to set some money aside and require that all districts with math assessments uh, scores below a certain point, which functionally wound up being basically every district in the state, 
have to use uh, initially they said they have to use a Florida based um, curriculum. Company. Yeah, it kind of like a supplemental tutoring. curriculum. Yeah, it's it's not for use in the classroom, but it's for use after school. Uh, it's virtual. Um, probably the kind of thing that seventh grade Andrew could have used as he flunked algebra. Um, I don't have been a reporter in the first place. <laughs> and that's an alternate history. I'm <laughs> sure people would love to hear about. Um, uh, but the, but the criticism was it's rare generally for intent and in, we in, in run into some procurement issues. If you kind of write a thing just for a specific company, so they changed it a bit to where it would be a company that checks a bunch of different boxes. It's reasonable to ask. It, it, it's still kind of basically written for Math Nation. There was question over whether we would use state money or whether we would use COVID relief money. It's a whole thing. But I, I think the broader question is legislators, they're not going to be satisfied uh, on on the front of, uh, until they see documented evidence that students are, are achieving more. And educators argue that, you know, funding for schools, it was increased after the Supreme Court ordered it in the Gannon lawsuit. And they feel like they aren't seeing the return on investment that they would like to see. Uh, I, Of course, you know, you had a pandemic and virtual schooling and a bunch of longtime teachers taking retirements, substitute teachers coming in. Uh, needing substitute teachers who had never gone to college. Uh, th- there was a lot more at play than just funding over the past two or three years, though I know evermore it doesn't really feel like we'd want to talk about COVID, kind of like a, we don't talk about Bruno. You got to sing. I'll spare your ears. <laughs> well, and... I- the it seems like there's just a lot of dispute though over whether uh, the 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 assessment process in general is kind of it's kind of hard to understand, uh, right, Raphael? I mean, like the, there are different levels that correspond to you know how where students are at, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to being at grade level or proficient, and it's just all kind of a mess. It's not as simple as A B C D E F E. Uh, did you get well, a lot of E's in school? <laughs> I'll give you an E for this podcast. No, it's as simple as one, two, three, four, quite literally. Um, but it, it is confusing for parents. Um, you, I, For example, we have some of the preliminary test scores or assessment scores for students per district. I know 501 um, briefly reviewed those at their last school, meet, or school board meeting. Um, and they're not looking that great. They're, they're continue to be down of course in the context of um coming back after covid um but they're confusing because they get benchmarked to the statewide um assortment of people who or students who do take these assessments for parents it's going to be difficult to understand quite how their students are performing in school because it wasn't really designed for that purpose it was more um for accountability to see how our schools are doing in aggregate. So that's why it's probably, it's confusing to get that report here this summer on how your student did on those state assessments. It's important to know that it's not necessarily indicative of how well they are doing in school. It's a measure of one student on one day 
after COVID, um, it's I, the full results or assessment scores that come out later in the fall will be more telling, but signs do point that they will probably be down again. And we also have talk now of not exactly a civics or social studies government history assessment, but we have a pilot project in the works for a civics test. See, that test I would have done a lot better on than my algebra test. See, as a uh, former Kansas middle school student, I was very disappointed I didn't get to take, was it the eighth grade when you get the history, social studies, and government test? Uh I was in the year that did not get it, and I figured that was my best subject. But now, uh, <laughs> seniors in high school... I'm glad we can get this off our chest. <laughs> yes. I, 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 am, I, I have let it go. I'm not going to sing that either. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we have... The State Board of Education now has... Or the State Department of Education, rather, is working on a pilot project for a civics test for seniors... It comes after Rep. Steve Hubert from Valley Center had been pushing for a civics test akin to the U.S. immigration and uh, test that uh, allows people to become naturalized citizens. Uh, he had been pushing for that to be a graduation requirement. This new one won't be a graduation requirement. It's not a formal state assessment. But, Raphael, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, well, like you mentioned, it this assessment comes after political pressure um, to enact something like that. It's, And I think the broader theme of what we've been talking about this entire time is what role does the state house or the legislature play in some of these issues? That assessment, um, the civics test, that it seems like that's more of a proof of concept than anything that will actually become permanent. Um, but it'll at least show that the State Department made an effort to see how it would look. There's not a lot of appetite among teachers or schools to actually enact this kind of thing um, because the way it's being proposed or that um, some lawmakers are wanting this, it's going to be that uh, multiple choice test just to see if you could pass a quote-unquote not replica of the U.S. citizenship test. But teachers are arguing that that's not a great representation of what students are actually learning or the model that they're taking towards their classes. They want students to be able to answer some of these more substantive type questions rather than just being able to circle B or C on um, how many branches of government are there. Uh, This is kind of a unique problem for social studies. Uh, Is it enough if you are a high school senior that you can say what is in the First Amendment, or what the three branches of government are. You know, uh, it's kind of like, you know, 50 years ago, you were told you needed to know your multiplication tables and how to do math uh, in the grocery store because you wouldn't have a calculator with you. Well, guess what? You now have a cell phone and can do that. And it's trying to figure out what a 21st century education needs and being able to memorize something that you can easily look up on the internet doesn't really cut it in today's world. Well, and, and I know some people who were kind of making that point pointed to the uh, the most important education policy item from the session, and that is the new state fruit, the of Sand course. Hill Plum. 
as promoted by uh, great scores from across the state. But they said, hey, look, those kids, they wrote up a bill, for goodness sake, and they brought it to the legislature and they tracked it and they got it passed and signed into law. How can you be more civically engaged than that? And, you know, a little, little, you know, little Jimmy from uh, uh, Brown County, you know, is he going to be able to say, uh, uh, you know, the, recite the preamble, the Constitution, or, or you know, uh, other things? Maybe not, but but he had that experience that that is surely meaningful. What, and what what's more meaningful and uh, educational than watching a broadly popular bill go through the legislature, have a threat of an amendment that is unpopular, get sent to conference committee where it has the risk of being gutted to become a vehicle for other legislation and then eventually gets passed and signed into the law with a ceremony at the state house. And it was passed, we should add, at like 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) They got the whole sausage-making process down pat. I'm sure that that's the point that the teachers were making with this bill as an example, that 50 years from now when these kids are 70 and they're thinking about what they learned in school, they're not going to remember what... 50 years from now when the kids are 70? It sounds like (laughs) you might need some math nation... I'll take that. But 50 years from now, the kids aren't going to remember what they studied for for a specific assessment or a test. They're going to remember that experience. They're going to be able to tell you how a bill becomes a law um, here in Kansas. It's more about teachers want their kids to learn how to think, not what to think. And that's the whole pushback against these um, ideas of forcing these amend- or these assessments on um, schools that they frankly don't see the value of having them beyond them maybe being able to be used as a tool or a weapon against them. And when you say how to think, that doesn't mean that teachers want to indoctrinate students. It just means that they want them to be able to think through things, do problem solving, be able to think for themselves using what they learn in class. Exactly. It's about thinking critically. And it's not to say that um, the schools will aren't teaching about the three branches of government or when our nation was founded. They go over that. It's just about the expectation that they remember all these ultimately trivial details versus understanding the values and concepts behind some of these facts that kids could memorize, but what would be the point when, again, you can look up anything on your phone? Yeah, stuff like instead of listing the three branches of government, you write a essay about the interaction between the two, and you can't – it's not – very translatable to a state assessment or writing an essay explaining the differences between things. Well, speaking of the interplay between branches of government, um, I did want to circle back to the kind of the 10,000 foot theme you mentioned, uh, which is interactions between the fourth branch of government, which is the state board of education and the legislature. Um, I think it, it was, it played out a little differently this session than it did, in 2021, where at one point it seemed like there was the State Board of Education was like six seconds away from suing the legislature. Um, it never quite played out that way, but tensions were running really high. Raphael, do you think things have gotten better? Things have gotten, have saved the same? I don't know that things have gotten worse, but I'm curious kind of what you think. I think things cool off um, as the State Board tries to look at some of these bigger initiatives like, um, for example, the graduation requirements. That's something that that hasn't necessarily become that much of a 
politically divisive issue. But I think that a lot of this tension between lawmakers and the state board just comes down to um, who should be making these decisions. Um, We here in Kansas really do value that idea of local control, but it gets messy when you start talking about the different representatives you elect um, to the state house, to the state board, um, how those decisions at that top level do trickle down to local boards who do see their own versions of some of these more politically divisive issues. Um, But thinking too that, like I checked the um, candidate list for the state school board races, there's only one competitive race um, in the first district to replace Janet Waugh, who hasn't filed for re-election. I don't think she's going to run again, but it doesn't seem like a lot of the prior divisiveness has necessarily carried over here now into the summer. And I mean, part of it is, say, on the civics test, for example, the there were kind of some veiled threats that the if if the State Board of Education and the Department of Education didn't play ball, the lawmakers might try to put a proviso in the budget uh, that would get at making a civics test. Before the budget was finalized, that's when the Department of Education uh, announced the pilot project, and the, the State Board wasn't too thrilled with that idea. I don't know if they came up with this idea to prevent it from being tacked into the budget, but that might have been a little bit of an olive branch. Well, in the the last area I think they definitely want to cover is, you know, like everything in life, comes back to money and funding, which has – school funding in Kansas has long been an issue. Uh, many, many lawsuits. Um, but we, we find, we've reached the point where, where – um, We've reached the point where it's less of a live issue, but also we got to see kind of some debate over what it means for a school to be fully funded, getting at special education funding, really mixing it up this session because that's not something that has been uh, as prominent in the last couple of years, but really seemed like uh, it was a pretty concerted effort to bring that issue to the forefront this time around. Yeah, it's... Well, that that special education issue. Um, by state law, the legislature is supposed to fund the excess special education cost. That is to say anything extra that a school district might incur in teaching and giving a proper education to special education students who do need those more specialized services. They're supposed to f- cover 92% of those excess costs. Um, I'm blanking on the exact number, but in recent years, it's not been close to that. It's been like seventy percent, about seventy percent. So this is almost which is what a difference of about like a hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, it's quite a bit. It's expensive to educate special education students, and um, that's where a big chunk of school districts' budgets go toward. They require specialized um, teachers, therapists. it, it takes a lot, and that's almost become just the next stage of this battle for school funding now that um, some of the m- more general issues on um, the base aid have been settled. I mean, th- this debate really picked up uh, back in 
was it April when we got the new consensus revenue estimates? Yeah. Uh, found out that we were projected to have, what, like a $3 billion surplus at the end of the next fiscal year. So educators came in and said, you know, we we really should have this extra $150 million uh, since state law says we're supposed to get it anyway. Uh, the governor's office tried to say, how about instead of $150 million, we do 30 extra million? And the lawmakers were kind of like, you know, you haven't really been pushing this before, and you say that we're fully funding schools, so here's zero extra dollars. Yeah, it's been part of this idea to gradually phase up to that 93% level. Um, I'm still not entirely clear why that isn't something that could be settled under any of these previous lawsuits. It seems pretty clear that the state statute says that they're supposed to be funded at that those um, 92% of excess special education costs. but And there is some dispute in how that number is calculated, but the overwhelming consensus is that we are not funding at that 92% statutory level. No, not at all. And that's not to say that the school di- districts just make without for those special education students. By federal law, they have to meet all the um, needs of those students. But what it does mean for school districts is that if they're not getting that support from the state, then they're specifically for special education students, then they're pulling in from their general funds to help cover some of those costs. So the argument is what good is it if we're fully funding, you know, if, if the base aid has increased, if you're ha- kind of ultimately having to raid some of those funds to pay for special education I mean, programming anyway. was it anyway. that was down, was it $4 million that their superintendent said? I don't remember the exact numbers, but that'd be, it, it sounds about right. Well, and as Jason said, that this didn't really get any traction. Um, and I, I know a lot of folks who, who really wanted this thought that this was the moment for the exact reasons that you said, because the the revenue, it was such a bumper year for revenues. And even a lot of Republicans were ambivalent or in favor of the idea. I think there was an amendment offered on the floor by Representative Jared Owsley, he's a Democrat from Merriam. And it passed for, I don't know. 15 minutes. Yeah, all, all, of, all of less than a half hour before they reconsidered the vote and took it out of the budget. Uh, but a lot of Republicans, particularly folks from more rural areas, voted for it. And I think it's kind of an interesting theme that you've seen. Um, it just the needs of, of school districts in more rural areas are very different than needs of suburban Johnson County school districts. And I think... That plays out in the debate, and I think it, it, you know, they're supportive of ideas like increasing special yeah. ed funding. I think though. it's important to point out too the maintenance of effort idea that yeah, it, we we did have a great year for um, tax revenues, but funding those excess special education costs at that higher level this year commits the state to funding that for following years. Um, so or risk losing federal exactly. Aid. So it's a uh, it. it it's not as clear cut as it might seem initially, but it it's something that I think will definitely return this next legislative session. Well, particularly given that, well, at least for now, <laughs> the other school funding issues have kind of been resolved. Whether that remains to be true in the future, we will see. But um, if you know, it's about the time you start thinking that's when we gotta dust off our courtroom suits, but. With the money, we also did have tax cuts this year, and one of the 
big ones that uh, was bipartisan and everybody likes to take credit for was a property tax cut that came via increasing the exemption on the statewide 20 mil levy. Uh, Which is used to fund schools. Right. And while it comes down to about $46 per home, uh, I mean, that that's over $100 million worth of tax cuts, uh, of property tax cuts, but it's money that goes, that would have gone directly to schools. What are you going to do with your $46? Uh, I'll, I'll have to decide which uh, Topeka restaurant I'd like to go to. <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm thinking barbecue tonight. Good choice. I think as we do start to look to the next legislative session, um, now here in Kansas we did wrap up right before the unfortunate shooting down in Texas um, in Wednesday, but I imagine that's going to be uh, – it, it, it seems like there's a different tenor to this issue right now. I think it's going to carry over into the election cycle and maybe into the um, legislature next school year. Well, especially given that we there was a, also a school shooting in Olathe in February, February, March, earlier this year um, that – that also kind of uh, changed the dynamics as well. So right. we did have, you know, that that Olathe shooting came right before a bill was scheduled for a hearing on gun education in schools, and that hearing got scrapped and never was rescheduled. Was it? They did wind up having the hearing, but the bill n- didn't move, and and it's probably a bill that otherwise would have moved, and it. It moved last session. It was vetoed by Governor Governor Kelly. So, it it as Rafael said, it could it could at least change the tenor of things, which will will be something to watch. And it might be something too that's uh, decided at the local level. I know um, that the Governor's Commission on Racial Equity and Justice they had recommended schools and school communities start looking at the role of their school resource officers a little differently. Um, I don't think that's anything that necessarily changes here in the aftermath of the shooting, but it is, I think, an important discussion for communities to have in looking how um, school resource officers both help police these school communities, but also keep them safe. Well, I... A good place to end it, I think, and and we should also say that we are uh, we have been very much reflecting and thinking of the folks in Texas uh, this past week. Heartbroken, and there's no words that are good enough to say. Um, if you want to read uh, updates from the Capitol Journal uh, on news from Texas and across the country uh, and throughout Kansas. You can go to cjonline.com or follow us on social media. Gentlemen, where can we find you on social media? By Rafael Garcia at Twitter. That's not your byline. That's your Twitter handle. Yeah. Oh, look, I see what you did there. Exactly. At Jason underscore Tid on Twitter. And I am at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. And you can listen to back episodes of Chillin' in the State House anywhere fine podcasts are found, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. And uh, if you like what we do, you can subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. We don't miss future episodes, but that's because we're usually recording them. We, we, you know, 
it, it helps. We have insider trading kind of information. Um, any big Memorial Day plans for either of you? I take the silence as a as a no. No, I'm gonna enjoy my start of the summer. Well, we wish all of you a restful and uh, wonderful start to your summer as well. Raphael and Jason, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you back next time, same time, same place. <laughs>